Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from The Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, You've Got Mail, where we discuss the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. The reading this morning will be, uh, will be split in two. I want to read Revelation 1 as an intro to set the scene for this series. Uh, and then we will read the letter to the, the church in Ephesus in a bit. And so if you want to turn to Revelation 1, I'm going to read the entire chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in affliction, or in the, in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze that is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. 
So I came up this morning, and I think that I spoke a little too soon before Nathan could cue it up, but, but we have a clip for you that I, I think is going to roll for the next seven weeks every time the speaker comes up. Nathan, I'll let you go ahead and play it. Welcome. You've got mail. Does that ring a bell to anyone? Is that familiar to anyone? And is there anybody that's like, I have no idea what that just was? I was going to say, Ezra at least? Like, come on, man. Right? We've called this sermon series, You've Got Mail. It's the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And um, yeah, and so, and so that's kind of the inspiration. And then Jake created this graphic. I'm really asking Nathan on the fly to do some things. But if this makes sense to about 90% of you, and it's so awesome. And uh, this is just going to be so fun. And then it kind of coincided with, you know, moving into fall. This is for some of you, the last Sunday of summer, is that how you'd look at it? Labor Day weekend? Or, you know, the first Sunday in the Christmas season? However you want to say it. But, but fall is like, I'm not saying, this is not, to, just in general, the internet will tell you, is like the time for rom-coms. If you like them or not, if you Google best movies for fall, they're always going to be on the list. And You've Got Mail is one of the classic ones. Has anyone seen You've Got Mail? Is that familiar to you? Yeah? Yeah? Tom, Tom Hanks, I think, right? It's Tom Hanks? Yeah. Yeah, so, so we, this is, this is going to be fun. You've got mail the next seven weeks, seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And so we were just in Psalms all summer long, and what I just read to you is nothing like what we read in Psalms, is it? Nothing like it. And that's why the Bible is so amazing. It's this brilliant, beautiful, diverse, weird library of books that spans years and generations and genres, and yet it, it tells one unified story. And Revelation is that weird book at the end of our Bible that you are either fascinated by or you're terrified of and you try to avoid it at all costs, right? And, and people have made a mess of Revelation trying to read modern times into it so they could decode the events uh, you know, when Christ will return, and that is so not the point. Nothing, nothing in Revelation is Russia or war jets or iPhones or, or whatever. That is not what John is trying to convey here. By the way, I just, I, I want to, it's just kind of a, a means of introduction. I just want to help you out. So say this, I, I hate when pastors do this, but this one is important. Say this with me this morning. Revelation. See how there isn't an S on the end there? That was very good. That's important. You don't want to mess that up. When you, when you say revelations, that's like the biblical version of saying Kmart's, which is only excusable if you were Maxine Nigro, you know, rural Minerva, Ohio, elderly person. Otherwise, Kmart, revelation, that's important. You're welcome. So our author, John the Revelator, is most likely John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, the epistles bearing his name. 
kind of makes sense. He wrote the weird gospel, and God thought he was up to the task of writing Revelation as well, right? And John tells us that he's on Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Oftentimes, one would be sent to an island for exile. Some of you are like, that sounds pretty nice. By Rome uh, for different crimes. And the harshness of their exile uh, experience depended on what they did. For John, it was probably something like what they called promulgating a superstition. Uh, because he was saying Jesus had been raised from the dead, and so this got him this Greek island vacation, sort of, without any severe treatment or intense labor, probably, especially when you consider how aged he was. He was a very old man. It's believed that the, after the empire who sent John to Patmos died, that John was allowed to return home, uh, and with him, he brought his revelation, and, and then it became um, circulated. Now, John's writing to a contemporary audience, and I think that's so important to note. And I think I want to leave us with this before we get to the text at hand today. John doesn't understand his apocalyptic vision to be for people thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the future, I don't think. And I don't think his original audience does either. Because would you want to read something written to people thousands of years after your own death? instructions to people thousands of years after your own death, I think you'd probably be like, I mean, I'm not going to be here. This doesn't seem applicable to me, right? Here's how leading New Testament scholar Ben Witherington puts it, and I will probably refer to him often during this series. He's written a brilliant commentary on the book of Revelation. He says this, In short, the function of these prophecies is hortatory. They are not given to satisfy idle curiosity about the future. They are imperatival and entailing a call to action. Unlike in some apocalyptic works, here the revelation is to be unsealed. It's not to be sealed up. It is to become known. It's not to be hidden for some remote future generation to discover. For John, since the eschatological time is at hand, the time for unsealing the revelation is now. Again, this is not a book about Russia, aircrafts, and microchips. It's not about It's not urging us to figure out which world leader is the Antichrist. All right, we're going to count to three and all say who you think it is, right? One, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) As if there's just one that we're constantly to be on the lookout for in 2023, right? But many have made much salacious and titillating content around this book and money, by the way, from this book, content that has little to do with the actual intention of God and his servant, John of Patmos. And many well-intentioned people have become very obsessed with prophecy and the end times, and the air quotes are very intentional, and somehow less enamored with Jesus and his gospel, tragically. I think these seven letters will show you the significance of this book to people in the late first century and how our churches today have some of the same issues. And if you read the entire book of Revelation, just for fun, you would see how it talks about a coming day when Christ comes back to reign in fullness. It's for them. It's for us. It tells of God's future intervention in history. A few more things to note in this intro. In verse 4, John gives us the very familiar Pauline greeting of grace and peace. But historically, Domitian, you know, the guy who sent John into exile to begin with, would preface any awful sentence or pronouncement or punishment with this phrase. It has pleased the Lord our God, talking about himself, in his grace, 
And when you heard this, you knew the following was going to be horrible. And so John is quite possibly not just repeating what Paul says. He's quite possibly taking Domitian's own phrase, turning it back on the empire itself to say, at very least, that he and the Christians live by a different sort of mercy and grace than the awful, oppressive grace of Domitian. And I wonder if even he's saying something kind of cheeky, like, yeah, something horrible is coming to pass on those who oppose God and his people. Maybe, maybe not today, but one day a judgment is coming. The latter is just speculation on my part. Maybe I'm just snarkier, a little more spiteful than the aged John of Patmos. He had a lot more time to be sanctified hanging out on that island. And just so you don't get lost in all this imagery, okay? The seven spirits are equated with the lamb's seven eyes in a different place with blazing lamps, and yet in another place with seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches we will be discussing in the weeks to come. Witherington comments, the angels are the eyes of the great king, keeping watch over the church for the lamb. But lest this image suggests that Christ is distant, we are reminded in the first chapter of Revelation that Christ stands among the lampstands, which represent these seven congregations. A major point of the entire book is that is that heaven and earth are very close indeed. In fact, they are juxtaposed in such a way that heaven is already active in and for earth and will descend to it at the end in the form of the new Jerusalem. Verse 10 does something most, most books don't do in the Bible, and they, it explains exactly how God specifically inspired this book. We kind of get the mechanics on that, right? He says, it says, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And so at this point, um, Christians had started meeting on Sundays, the first day of the week. They understood it back then, though to most of us, this is the last day of the week, right? This is the, the first biblical reference to that, I believe. Uh, emperors in Asia, where these churches are located, had a day set aside once a month called the Emperor's Day, just, just once a month. So Christians gave Lord Jesus a day too, but, but once a week, not once a month, where he would be worshipped. So they were one-upping the empire and their gods, these Christians were. John said he was in the Spirit. That doesn't mean he had the Holy Spirit, like you and I have the Holy Spirit if we're in Christ. It means that he was in some sort of state of ecstasy or trance-likeness, probably. And then in a, a loud voice, it's told to him to write these things down. What an experience that must have been. I, I would love to see what he saw, right? And then, if you will just allow me to present one final word here from Dr. Witherington's commentary on Revelation. And, and I beg you, stick with me. This is kind of scholarly writing. I know you can handle it. I, I think it's important, and I think you will, I think you will too. Uh, and if not, humor me. It'll be over before you know it. But I, I just think this is an important note on how we read this book, which is, which is much more complicated than how we read, like, an epistle or a gospel. So he, he starts by describing these three views of, of what time Revelation describes. And if you've ever turned on like TBN for a minute, you've probably heard somebody trying to talk about what time period Revelation describes. And spoiler alert, the most money is made if you think it's the future. And so, you know, or, or our current time. Um, and all three of these views have sort of long German names that I cannot pronounce and will not try for you. The first is that it's solely about the time that John is writing it. The second idea is that it's about final history, and that's it. It has nothing to do with the people John's writing to. And then lastly, there's this view that it's about the history of the church throughout the ages. And Witherington says this about those approaches. 
One problem with all these approaches to the text is that none adequately comes to grips with the nature of apocalyptic prophecy. They all tend to assume that a purely horizontal timeline determines a proper approach to Revelation. And so all one needs to do is determine where one is on the timeline of recorded events. Yet, most, most apocalyptic literature takes the perspective that these events occur not by historical causation, just things occurring in history, but by divine intervention. In short, no view that operates with a timeline excluding God's periodic intervention now and at the end of history will be a satisfactory approach. This book is about the interface of time and eternity, and more crucially, about how time is controlled by the eternal God. The unsealing of the scrolls by the heavenly Christ is what precipitates earthly events. God's innervation, not calculation of signs and events, determines the action. Revelation, unlike various other apocalyptic works, does not engage in the periodization of history to reckon the time until the end. History is not to be seen as a self-contained homogenous process where the normal laws of cause and effect applies. For John, the most important events in human history have already transpired. That's important. The death and resurrection of the Lamb. All else, all else after that has to be seen as an eschatological denouement. Eschatological, by the way, every time you hear that word, just think end things. End, end things. The, the end is already broken into time and space through the Christ event. Here's a chronicling, not of history as we know it, but rather of God's eschatological judgment on history. Since Christ has died and risen, there are no theologically significant events that need to happen before the end events of the eschatological age. Thus, the author, can, and he just did this in, in our first chapter, thus the author can speak of the time as short or near. God could bring down the curtain on history at any moment. John interprets the present in light of both the realities above and the realities yet to come, which in some cases will come down from above. Christ already reigns in heaven, and the victory song is already sung there. But Satan is currently loosed upon the earth, and victory has not yet been fully realized. The focus in Revelation is on eschatology, not on salvation history. History receives its meaning and interpretation from the future, in particular, from the future intervention of God in Christ. The focus on coming judgment shows that our author is not interested in esoteric discussions about the meaning of history. Rather, his focus is on the meaning of and divine response to suffering, in particular, the suffering of God's people. The three sets of seven judgments all climax in judgment, and indeed the climax of the book of Revelation, of the book in Revelation 17 through 20, is about final judgment and final salvation. The comfort for the suffering is not in the events leading up to the end, even when they go as God plans. Rather, it is in the very final events when death and evil are eliminated and tears are wiped away from the veil as the veil of tears is transformed by the unveiled New Jerusalem. God's people are already a kingdom in this world, a locus where God's saving will is revealed and done, but they must still pray, thy kingdom come, which refers to the point where Christ makes the kingdoms of this world his own. In short, this book is about what is behind and at the end of history, but it does not seek to present a timetable about history. And with that, I think we can get into today's text. So go ahead and look at Revelation 2, 1 through 7, and we will read the main text for this morning. 
write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Ephesus. We as a church in our, in our short history have gone through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a commercial and religious center, though apparently by the time Revelation is written, uh, the commercial aspect of Ephesus is actually in the decline due to the silting up of its harbor. Hate when that happens. Um, Christianity had existed in Ephesus for a long time. Think, think about when Ephesians was written, probably in the 50s and now now the mid-90s, Christianity is obviously a, a not a very, um, is a very new sort of religion on the scene. And, um, and John is, is writing to this same church some 40 years later probably. That's, that's a long time. This church has been around for a while. Long enough for things to grow stagnant. If you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've been a, I don't know if anybody's been, anybody been a Christian for 40 years here, following Jesus for 40 years? Yeah, okay. I bet at some point things were stagnant in your spiritual life, you know? And, and the same for a church that, that, that's 40 years old, collectively some stagnation. And, and so Jesus says, I know your, your works and your labor. Nothing like a, a compliment sandwich, which this letter is. You ever heard of a, a compliment sandwich? You, you need to give a little negative feedback. You, you sandwich it between a compliment and another compliment or positive feedback, positive feedback. It goes a little better, right? And Jesus kind of employs this technique for the, the Ephesians here. He says, I know your works and your labor. You are going hard for the cause, guys. You are, you're doing the things. Church work gets done. If, if it were a modern church, we might say the budget is done, you're, you're having all of your board and committee meetings, the committees are running flawlessly, excellent volunteerism and organization of volunteers, the bathrooms are clean, the rugs get swept, it's all getting done. Good job, you guys. You are hard at work. Not only that, he says, but you have some moral standards. You, you not only take your, your work as a church seriously, but also you are ethical. You won't tolerate evil people. And this is a good thing. If someone is morally out of line, you don't tolerate it. You call it out. It, it's got to change if someone's going to consider themselves part of this church here in Ephesus, you say. You, you ask them to repent. Some good things. Hardworking for the kingdom of God, a commitment to, to righteous living. Is that all? No, he's got more. Jesus has more good things to say about them. You've tested 
those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. They have spiritual and doctrinal discernment. There are people who came in and tried to assert themselves as church leaders, and, and these discerning old Ephesians saw them for who they were. They heard them out. They, they weighed what they said against the real apostles' teaching, and they dismissed them as liars correctly. And so they work hard for the kingdom. They're committed to holiness. They're committed to the truth of God's word as we now know it. And they protect it at all costs. Now, if you got a letter from Jesus, or if, we, if the table got a letter from Jesus, and it started out like this, we would be hyped, right? Would we not? We'd be very pleased with ourselves. This would be very encouraging. He doesn't even stop there, though. In this time of emperors and persecutions, he says, I know that you've persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you haven't grown weary. I know, too, that you're being pressed on all sides for following me, for calling yourselves Christians, and guess what? I see you, and I'm proud of you. I love that. You haven't grown weary. You are enduring it all for my sake. You've counted the cost and decided it is worth it to follow me. You keep paying it. You might think if, if Jesus just had four good things to say about me, if he just had four good things that he could come up with about me, four things he was proud of, of me, what a fantastic position to be in. What a fantastic place for your church to be in. Great report card. So it seems. But I have this thing against you, Jesus says. As much as the praise literally makes you feel like you could float, you can feel your stomach sink when you hear, I have this thing against you. What could Jesus have against me? Jesus, you have something against me? And then he says it. It's that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Maybe you've heard this verse a little differently. I feel like there was a time where it was taught a little differently. It was translated a little differently. You've abandoned your first love. Maybe that's any of you learn it that way. You've abandoned your first love. I've heard messages crafted around that before. Like, you know, Jesus is your first love and you've abandoned him somewhere along the line and you need to return to Jesus, which like if you have abandoned him, you do. But, but it's not really saying that. That's not, that's not what he's talking about here. It's saying you've abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the agape you had at first. Now, agape means love of God generally, but it doesn't mean love like for God. So when you've abandoned that, what does it mean? I think it means you've abandoned the love that God has given you for your brothers and sisters. You've lost the love God has given you for each other. In the midst of all the good things you're doing, the truth you're protecting, the moral integrity you're protecting, the suffering and persevering you're doing, You dropped love for one another. And Jesus is great because he's not the guy to come and point out a problem and and just say, figure it out and move on. No, he gives you the solution. He says, remember how far you've fallen. Remember for a moment the highest point in this church's history, you Ephesians. When you were so motivated by love, when you wouldn't only die, suffer for Jesus, but for each other because you loved one another so much. Do you remember those days? I don't know when it was in their history. Maybe he's like, remember back in the 60s when, when it was like that? Maybe it was a few years ago. Whenever that was. 
Go back to that. Repent. Change back to that. Climb back up to that place that you've fallen from. Start loving each other again like you did back then. Go back to doing what you did at first when there was wonder and enchantment in this church thing. And how serious is Jesus about this love thing? He says, if you don't, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place. Essentially, this thing will cease to be. It will lose its status as a church. It will lose its light. If you don't love one another, it's not worth paying the electric bill to keep the lights on, even with all your truth and your morality and your patient suffering. Without love, we'll just call it on this church, Jesus says. That's the cost of not repenting, of not loving one another. And then again, this is a compliment sandwich. So the bottom piece of the bread there, he says, you do have this though. You, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I hate too. It's very hard to, if you've ever studied Revelation, get a straight answer on who these people were. Most scholars just meet that with like a shrug, like we don't really know. The, the straightest answer I've seen, and in, in in not that it makes it the truest answer, it's just the most direct answer I've seen, is that they were apparently a group that taught that Christians could behave however immorally they wished without consequence. Which this would kind of fit the DNA we're given here of the Ephesian church. They would hate people like that. They, they stand up for the truth, and that's not true. They're morally upright, and that's not moral. So it makes sense that they hate their works, right? And then Jesus concludes, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter, it, it's not just the Ephesians, of course, it's being circulated in this whole book that is Revelation, so others would read it too, and everyone should take heed. This is kind of a if-the-shoe-fits situation, right? Even if you're not in Ephesus. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This, this book is so much about conquering. These letters mention it again and again. So to the one who keeps the faith, who perseveres, who doesn't quit, you will find yourself in the paradise of God. Just how there was a garden one, one day at the, at the front of your Bible, and all was right in the world, so it will be paradise again one day. And that could be your home, that could be your reality if you just keep going, so don't you ever quit. And our culture today is all about quitting on Jesus right now. But please don't give in to that impulse. Keep going. And that's it. That's the first letter. And, and this first letter is, is such a good one because it's convicting and it's timely. You can, you can work hard for God's kingdom. You can be very discerning of truth and lies. You can be very theologically discerning. You can endure hardship. You can hate the works of those who sin and laugh in the face of God as they do it, the God they claim to follow. You can do all those things, and you can think you're good then. But Jesus might be saying, this one thing I have against you. Maybe you work hard here at the table. You're always making food, always setting up. You show up at every event. You clean. You do it all. Thank you, first of all. God sees you. That's a beautiful thing. But maybe, maybe it makes you resentful and bitter Maybe you find yourself a little less fond these days of the ones who do less, and you have a list in your head. It's a major problem. 
Go back to the love you had at first. Maybe you're very doctrinally discerning, theologically discerning. You have an impeccable theological mind. You're always scanning the sermon as I preach it, and you're always taking notes at your Bible study, always making sure everything's just right, making sure no outside influences are getting into the flock, bringing in confusion. You care deeply about those things, but maybe you don't love your brothers and sisters. Maybe, especially those who disagree with you here and there. Then, then your love of truth is a little hollow. Maybe you care so much about integrity and we need that in our world. Maybe you're a truth teller. You love justice. You want to see the right prevail. But your heart doesn't break for the hurts of the people in the chairs next to you. They just happen to be attending the same lecture as you this morning and they'll be attending the same restaurant as you afterwards that happens to be in the same lecture hall. If that's where you are, you need to repent. You need to go back to the love that you had at first. So often when we drop some part of the spiritual life, we point to the other things that we're holding up as if we can just sub them in and not account for what is lacking. But Revelation 2 doesn't allow for that. You can, you can have truth and hard work and integrity. You can hate the works of the Nicolaitans as all you want. If you don't have love, Jesus might just turn the lights out in a church like that. Michelle, you can come up. You have to understand, there is a way to live where you can be externally very Christian by all appearances, but be quite empty. You can care a great deal about Christian doctrine. You can care a great deal about Christian ethics and morality. You can be devoted to the cause of Jesus so much you'd suffer for him. And yet you can be missing the hallmark of Christianity, which is love. And if you're missing love, I worry you've forgotten how loved you are that you've forgotten with what a great love Jesus has loved you with, that you've forgotten how love drove him to the cross to die for you. And if you aren't constantly moved by God's love for you, if you aren't meditating on God's love for you, if you aren't soaking in this gospel, then you will be dry in love for other people. So ask yourself this morning, do you love these people here? Some of you just got here, maybe you're like, I don't even know their names, but in general, do you love one another? Jesus puts a very high emphasis on love. And Jesus was the ultimate truth teller. He had the highest view of integrity and morality. He endured suffering like no other with a commitment to God. He lived out perfectly God's word. And yet he was fueled by love. And his love never wavered. And, and we are hopefully becoming just like him. But, but if you find your love for your brothers and sisters fading this morning, if you find that, that it's grown cold you need to remember how loved you are today first. You need to remember that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and after he gave thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup again, giving thanks, saying, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. We take communion here every week to remember, to hopefully stoke the fires in our hearts of love, to remember how loved we are, that we might love one another. And we take communion by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. Communion is available in the back on my left. And if you require a gluten-free alternative, it's available in the back on my right. And like I said, we just take it, take the bread, dip it in the cup, remembering that Jesus gave his life for you. 
My friends Randy and Rachel will be available to pray for you this morning if you need somebody to just put a hand on your shoulder and, and go to the Lord with you. They'll be on either side of the room. You can approach them at any time and just ask for prayer. And we just take communion slowly and self-paced so you can sit, reflect, pray. And then whenever you're ready, you can stand and take communion. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for uh, this assembly of your people this morning people that I love, that have loved me well. God, may our love not grow cold for one another. Might, might it be so that you, would, you couldn't say at the table, I have this thing against you. Increase our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.